identifying, training, and calling elders. I planted New Covenant in January of 2009. We moved to Richmond Hill, and we had no core group. So that made it difficult not only to find people, but then officers out of those people. And then add to that, we live in a town of about 70% transition with army officers. And so that's another dimension that a lot of towns don't have. Some do. Uh, it's very mobile and tran- transient. Um, and so it took us six and a half years to get our first elders, which is a bit longer than it takes a church plant normally. I think at that point we had had about 200-ish people through the church, and I think we were averaging about 120. Since then, we have gone through, uh, just in a year and a half, we lost 150 adults and kids, almost all to transfer, with the exception of a few discontent people and then people that relocated for grandchildren or whatnot. And we've probably brought in 120 over that time period. So we're averaging about one... I think if everybody's there, we keep track of numbers. I think we're about 160 right now. And and feeling like we need more elders. And so what I want to talk about just in this very short period of time we have together is just limiting the discussion to elders, not to deacons. And I'd like us to focus on identifying and a little bit on training and less on the calling aspect of it because you all, if you're in a PCA church, we have a book of church order, you have a set system that we have to follow for calling men uh, by way of the congregation's interaction with the session and whatnot. So I just wanted us to briefly enter in on this subject about identifying elders. Clearly, this is one of the most important aspects of the development of a church, and it's also one of the most difficult aspects of the development of the church. When we were first trying to get our first set of elders, I was very aware if we make a misstep here, it could be a lot worse than if we go on without as many men as we think we have. I think you, you feel that tension in ministry. Um, well, pragmatically, if we don't, then... But doctrinally, objectively, if we do and we get the wrong men, then... And it's sort of pick your poison at that point. And I opted to hold on and wait it out, and I'm thankful I did. I don't know what would have happened otherwise. I I just know I've seen hundreds of churches that uh, acted pragmatically um, and and lowered the bar in order to get more because they've convinced themselves they needed more elders, and in the long run they've suffered tremendously for that. So um, it was difficult to hold out that long. I certainly would not never advise someone to take six and a half years to get your first elders if, if you plan a church. But I'm thankful we waited. I, I know that we avoided a lot of a potential um, difficulty. And in part, I know that because some of the men that could have made their way in ended up becoming problem people later and then leaving the church and, and doing so without any power. So I, I dread the thought of what would have happened if they had had a vote and power. So again, it's a difficult subject. Identifying training, uh, the health of the church is dependent on the spiritual health and giftedness of men who hold office. I really believe that if men who God has called and he has equipped 
and that they are truly biblically and, and um, circumstantially qualified. And I'll talk about those two categories briefly. I believe God's blessing will be manifest in the church in different ways. And when men who aren't, and it's not always easy to see that because there's sort of scaffolding in front of every one of us, but when there are men that are not qualified and they get in, um, it, it causes sometimes irreparable damage to the church. And that's just history's replete with examples of that. The American church is full of it. Our own churches perhaps have seen that. Um, so uh, what do we do? We all know that it's essential to have good ruling elders. We all know the life of the church depends on it. Uh, but we also know there are these obstacles. How do we identify them? And then how do we give any kind of proper training knowing that none of us are trained properly and that all of life is going to be training and I hope we're all training continually and God is training us through his word and, and through what we read and learn and, and conversations we have with mentors and others who are beyond us but I think the first place that we, um, we go obviously is First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 now I'm not going to read that that should be a given I know it's not a given sadly um, uh, especially in the south the deeper the pockets, the closer men keep them. That's a qualification, though they'd never tell anybody that. Um, a lot of churches, whether they're Baptist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, community, deep pockets means that individual is stable in society, which means they're going to be stable as the leader in the church. Wrong. That is un- that's not a biblical qualification. That doesn't manifest itself anywhere. That is a counterfeit. Um, and so we, we have to deal first of all honestly with um, is this a man whoever he may be who fits these qualifications now let me say this at the outset none of us especially me uh, meet the qualifications in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 in any sort of absolute sense uh, not a week goes by that I don't ask whether I'm qualified to be in ministry because of my sin I think any man who knows himself does that and says who is sufficient for these things. With the Apostle Paul, a wretched man that I am, I do things I don't want to do, I don't do things I want to do. But there has to be some sort of general meeting of those qualifications. Uh, You can't have a man who's a scoundrel because he can be advantageous to the life of the church. Um, I, I think the way I like to put it is there has to be a superlative sense. All Christians are to meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And these are general qualifications of Christians, except for apt to teach for the elder. That's the one gift set. All the other ones, I mean, every Christian should be self-controlled, not given to much wine, um, uh, hospitable, uh, not having a, a bad name in the community, above reproach, a husband of one wife, having his children under uh, his authority, all those things are things that should be true of every Christian. But there has to be a sense where there's a superlative sense. So if a man comes to church half the Lord's day out of the year, I'm not going to pursue him to be an elder. That's me. Feel free to differ. I think it's hard to argue that there's a superlative sense of Christian character if a man is not with his family committed to um, an above and a beyond sense all the meetings of the church ordinarily. So 
Um, we'll talk about circumstances because it may not be a reflection of ungodliness. It may be a life circumstance. Even so, there has to be a superlative sense where the man we're looking for, the men we're looking for, are going to be an example to the flock. Paul will talk about that. You can't be an example if you're not, if you're not going, if you're not leading. You can't tell other people, hey, go over there and do that if you're not going over there and doing it. So if, if your wife comes half the year, if you come half the year, if you come without your wife half the year, we're not going to make you an officer. That's just a non-negotiable. Now, it doesn't mean we're not going to talk to a man and try to help him along, but we are looking to assess. So that's the first thing we're doing. We are assessing individuals in the church, and we are trying to take an inventory check and say, as I look out and I try to make an assessment about these individuals, um, what is the assessment I draw? Now, let me say this. I think that that assessment takes place in, in two ways. One, it takes place um, in the everyday life of the church. Again, is this person um, committed in a superlative way to the life of the church? And then two, on a smaller level, in the home, when you're out with that person, getting to know those people, you find out about those people, going to games with them, having them over your home, hanging out in men's groups, hanging out one-on-one, having their families over, you kind of, you learn to assess people that way. When we do so, I think we find that there are going to be four groups in any church, and and men are going to fall in one of those groups. Um, Roland has helped me with this, and that chart I gave you. So you're going to have men in an established church who already hold the title. They're already elders, and, um, and they already have the office, but they're not doing the work of the office. They may do the minimal work. They like the power. They like the name. They like the title. They like the meetings. They like pushing back on the senior minister when he kicks an idea out there because that's their sense of shepherding is... I, I have my say, and I'm going to get my little piece of the shepherding pie here in the, the administrative aspects of the life of the church. So, so you're going to have men. Presumably, a lot of churches, most churches, will have men that fit in that one box, not doing the work, already have the title. Then you're going to have men who fall in this box of what we call potential. Now, I think you're going to have a lot of men, and I've got one of our elders here, and he would say this, I think, that you're going to have a lot of men that fall in the potential box. So raw potential. Maybe they could be. Maybe they won't be. Um, when you have conversations with the elders about men in this box, sometimes you'll find one will say, oh, I think that person could be. And another will be like, absolutely not. <laughs> Do you know this about that person? And so you have this sort of raw potential possible box. And I think the better part of men in the church are going to fall in there. Um, Maybe they're Baptistic in their belief. They can't hold office in a PCA church. But if you can bring them along, if they come along, then they could. So you've got all these question marks and uncertainties, but that's the big circle, I think, in which most people fall in which you're working from. Then you're going to have this circle of people that are serving actively. Now, these are the people that don't have office. They're not elders. They're, they're generally, in my limited experience, they're not even seeking for the office. They don't want it. Whenever you broach the subject with them, I don't know, you know, I'm 
I just like to serve. But they're serving. They're doing the work. They're meeting with people. They're, they're taking initiative to memorize scripture with members that they know need them to encourage them. They are, uh, they are shepherding people to some extent just because they love people. And, and these are the people we want to make elders. Um, I remember asking one of my mentors, how will I know... I was so frustrated with just dealing, living in this raw potential circle. How am I going to know that the man is, the, is right to be an elder? How do I know it's not going to blow up? And, and he said, you'll know because they'll be the ones doing the work already and not seeking the office. And I think that's a, that's a very important thing. You know, you often have men who maybe have held office in other churches and they'll come to your church and the first thing they tell you is, I've been an elder or a deacon. I did this all these years. And, and what's the process here? And oh, do I have to go through the training again? And usually the more they talk, the more red flags go up. And the more I push them up in that little upper box and say, I'm not sure I even want them in the potential box. Um, I've had a lot of pastors and theologians say things like, if a man asserts what he's been repeatedly to you, uh, it's probably because you shouldn't have been that. Instead, people that come into the church, maybe they've held office, they let you know, but they let you know casually, and then all they do is serve. And they're not trying to shortcut, they're not trying to get weasel their way in, they're not trying to get out of training, they're not trying to do any of that, they're just serving people. And those people, it seems to me, are the people that um, we want to very quickly get into office. Um, now, You'll notice the little arrows I gave on this chart. Um, the last people we can have in the first circle who just have the name, the better. Um, the more we can move people from the potential circle to the serving circle, and I always think that's the first step is I try to encourage people without promising them an office, but, hey, you know, we've got this over here, and, you know... And if, if, they, if they take it on, if they, um, if they give themselves to that, then I usually say, okay, that person really stepped up. Mark did that marvelously as one of our elders now. Mark was a dispensational Baptist, Bible church background, Calvinistic, but very far from confessionally reformed. And just on his own, was studying things, would come back to me, yeah, I'm reading about this, I'm trying to understand this. Wasn't argumentative, and then we'd give him something to do, and he'd go do it. And um, he very quickly moved from the potential box to the serving box to the office box. And so I think that's the process as we assess these groups. Uh, We want to keep everybody who shouldn't be out. And we want to get all the men who should be moving toward. Now, maybe they just stay in the serving box. And I think that's something we want to consider. We have a man at our church who's been both an elder and a deacon. And who tells us repeatedly that he's not interested and uh, we really don't have many, if at all, doubts about him being qualified for elder or deacon, even though he'd probably be better at one than the other. But for whatever reason, his stage of life, this man has so much integrity, he's just determined, I really don't have time. And so we have not pushed. Because I think, you know, when you move beyond sort of a general assessment to a sort of the circumstantial, so... Now you have men in the potential box. They may or may not meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. 
And then you get some of them in the serving box and they're serving and they're joyfully serving and they're a blessing and they're hospitable and they're opening their homes. But when you approach them and you talk to them about, hey, would you consider, how would you feel about this? And they tell you very honestly, I don't have time, I'm not interested, I don't want to be. I just let them lie. Because the last thing I want is, uh, the Proverbs talk about an unfaithful man is like a foot out of joint. So I don't want to be having a session carrying around a, a dislocated foot because this person told me I don't have time to do much work so then all the other elders have to pick up the slack. And I hear that repeatedly from all the ministers I'm with. I mean, I can't tell. It's like the narrative of every church I talk to. How are things on your session? Well, they're great except for these guys over here who don't do anything. Why are they elders? I'm just saying, better to keep them from getting in than not be able to get them out or get them motivated when they're in. Um, Now, this gets more challenging when you move on to... Uh, the congregation identifying elders because in our Presbyterian form we we do the training we tell people what we're doing what we're looking for we're praying maybe we do a sermon series through one of the pastorals and then the congregants and I go back and forth on whether I like this about Presbyterianism or not the congregants vote for the men they want even though at the end of the day you're going to get the the nicks as it were, this is why I'm not sure I like this. Uh, in, in British Presbyterianism, the elders pick the men and then present them to the congregation. And then the congregation votes. I actually like that better, um, personally. But we don't do that in the PCA. We're very democratic. We're very grassroots. We're very American. Um, that has its own problems. And so what happens? What happens when congregants start to nominate men? You're ready for your nominations. You give out nomination forms. You tell people they got to go to the man. they got to ask the man if he's interested. Then he has to fill out an assessment about himself. We give out an assessment sheet. The person that's nominating him has to fill out an assessment sheet about him, whether he meets the biblical qualifications and what they think about him. And so we, we do that process very carefully. But what happens when the nomination process starts? Every man gets nominated, except for the men that aren't there most of the time and the congregation don't know them. And who nominates the men? Their wives. And why does the wife nominate them? Because it's a nice social status. If we have, we have seen this. I have friends that have seen this. If the wife is the only one and her best friend who nominates a man, no bueno. Mm-hmm. Like, I will say that if you won't. That's, that's not good. That is a social status, notch on the belt. I want my husband to be an elder or a deacon. Um, this happens all the time. Uh, maybe a man wants that because he sees the office as an accomplishment. You know, he's held office in, in the, the civil realm. He's held office maybe in the military. He's, he's uh, very successful in his career. He's a member of the Rotary Club. Hopefully he's not a Mason, but he probably is. Um, I did say that too. And yeah, we need to talk about these things because they matter. And, and now, now he sees, well, you know, why not? Why not me? I'm as good as anybody else. So, so you never know what the motives are of those who are wanting to come forward or going to put people forward. 
And yet somehow we have to try to discern that as a principle. Um, I led our, we, we went through diaconal training and, and the process only to have it shut down by God's providence last year and, and learn this the same way there as well. Um, well, let me back up and tell you when we went for elders, I had a man nominate a man who was a dispensational Baptist because the man that nominated him was a hyper homeschooler and this man was a hyper homeschooler. Uh, both have left our church subsequently. Uh, but dispensational Baptist, not reformed, not biblically qualified per our doctrinal standards, and then not really serving people in the church, not, there was a lot lacking. And on the nomination form that the one man had written about the other man, it said, apt to teach, he said, um, not sure might could be. Not sure might could be. Now, why would he have nominated a man when, when the only gift said is apt to teach? And he put, might could be. <laughs> because he's, he's wanting him in office because he shares his affinity for homeschooling. So, so you're going to get all that, and we, we're going to get all that, and you're always going to get that, and there's no way to stop that. And so how we interact and how we handle that is, is the next big step. Um, what I like to do, and I'm sure, John, you can, I'd love to hear how you guys do this, but after men have been nominated, if the session um, feels as though the man is qualified, even remotely or even in the potential box... We want him to come in and we want him to assess himself. We don't want to lead with, now here's our concerns. You know, you come to church half the year without your wife. You guys come a quarter of the year together. She comes without you a 16th of the year. You know, you're not really serving. And we have all our reasons why he's probably on this side of the potential box, not moving this way. But we like to ask men, you know, how do you, what do you think? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? It's amazing what you find out from people when you ask them that. They will either tell you way more than you could have imagined in a helpful way. Or they will just show you that they are absolutely oblivious to who they are. Either way, you're getting somewhere <laughs> if you take that step. And they're assessing themselves um, in my limited, and again, John has a lot more experience than me in this, but in my limited experience, I've found that that helps weed out a lot of people. And um, the more you let people talk about their own strengths and weaknesses, that a man nominated to be an elder, and I did that, and said, I, I don't think my gifts are really teaching. Okay, well, thank you. Because that's a necessary requirement. Um, yeah, but this one helpful a couple years ago, two years ago, the guy gets nominated, thinks he's called to be a deacon, just not sure he's mature enough to that self-assessment. He just says, I'm just not sure. And so we said, this is a time of discerning a call. It's just a testing period. Mm -hmm. And what and the Lord's crown is he, he eventually said, I just don't think I'm solid enough theologically. I don't have a grasp of this yet. Um, can I just go through the class? The training, and uh, so we just said, and that's perfectly safe. You're not, you're not going to be announced since you got rejected by the session or whatever. It's this, it's this private discernment process. Uh, and now, now this year, I got another guy just like him. 
I'm the, I'm the guy will be a deacon one day. I'm not sure if it's now or not. But there's this. <coughs> but but Scott did this last year, and it's okay to test your gifts. Mm-hmm. And you go through this, and the end of the process, you'll know yourself better. You'll know your God's word better. You'll know the role better. Maybe it's the right time. Maybe it's later. Mm-hmm. But there's just kind of safety in that. It's not. It's not like no. It's let's test. Yep. And it becomes an easier kind of process. So this next guy's like, okay, I'll test it. Maybe it's now. Maybe it's later. And that's beyond. Them. But they, of course, they have the humility to say that as well. That becomes big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Um, I think you also have the question of dynamics and just very briefly let's talk about that you know the bible says let no one despise your youth timothy was probably around 40 but there's always the real potential that older saints are going to despise the youth of younger men who are more spiritually minded and you have the weird you know subordinates to insubordinates uh, moral law thing and the respect due and yet paul doesn't say so wait 10 years and you know, then they'll receive you. Says, be an example in faith and word and love and practice and purity. Um, give heed to reading exhortation doctrine that your progress may be evident to all. And so, um, I want to be careful not to eliminate a guy who's 26, though that's young, if he is very, and we have one such right now, very spiritually mature, who could be an elder. Um, However, if he was converted at 24, not a novice, if he was converted at 17 and he's 26, he's not a novice. It's not a new convert nine years. Um, uh, that's always hard to discern there, too. What is novice? I think it's first couple of years, very baby. I mean, Paul is in ministry right away after his conversion. Um, so it's not absolute. Um, But I do think, and we talked about this as a session with the diaconal process and certainly with elders, it's nice to have representation, if you can, from the different age segments of the church. It's nice to have older men. It's nice to have some younger men. So that's just a practical, sociological consideration. It's not biblical. And, you know, in our situation, we have one elderly family in our church. We had one leave us because they were fundamentalist. Um... We had to just relocate. We literally have one elderly family in our church. And everybody else is two, I suppose. And everybody else is 60 and under with a lot of 30-year-olds right now. So we may just have to bite the bullet and have younger officers as we go forward. And that's something we're going to have to live with. And, you know, the middle-agers who aren't stepping up, aren't interested, aren't serving, don't want the office... Can't complain if that happens. Um, so just as a sociological dynamic, some people will make hard and fast rules there, I think, and they'll say, never have an all-young session. Well, it's not up to you. I mean, the demographic is what God gives you. Um, but I think, obviously, it's wise to have older men with experience because age brings wisdom, youth brings zeal, and you need zeal and wisdom. And uh, younger people often lack wisdom, older people often lack zeal, and they need each other. So... Look, we are pressed for time because I want to get you out of here. Any questions or comments or input from y'all? I haven't even gone into training. We do 40 to 60 hours of training for elder, 40 for deacon. Um, The reason for that is you're going to do it on one side or the other. So 
eat the sandwich, eat the sandwich now, or eat it later when it's harder, but you're going to eat it somewhere. You're going to be training, cleaning up a mess later by training after the fact, or doing it and trying to get as much in on the front end as you can. Philosophy-wise, knowing what kind of church we have, knowing you know the direction of the session. You don't want yes men, but you want team men. You don't want no men. Some churches say we don't want yes men, and what they get is no men. Guys that constantly oppose. So you want team men. So they have to know where this church is moving. And so I would rather do more training on the front end, even though it's harder on me and on the men, than to have to fix that later on, which is almost irremediable once those men get in with a different philosophy. Yes? I was just going to say, in an established church context, when you come in and you have some people who have the title, but they're not, you discover over time they're not qualified, you've inherited them, what would your recommendation, I mean, they're not disqualified by sin or scandal, they're just, maybe circumstances, maybe uh, failure to participate, you mentioned that, they don't come as often as they should, they're not as involved in shepherding, whatever it might be, what would you recommend, how do you bring them along, what if they, you try to bring them along and they don't, they still what they were when you came. What do you do? Yeah, and I, you know, I know you have to take each situation kind of as they come, because everybody's different. Right. Uh, but Ron Gleason was just telling me that they had a situation like that in California, and he said, you know, we gave this, we'll just call it a delinquent elder, not necessarily morally, it might be just circumstantially, but for whatever, whatever reason was not <laughs> picking up the load, wasn't reaching out, wasn't shepherding, wasn't visiting at all for like a year and so um, I think Ron said he went and he said hey you know we'd really like you to visit this family and this family and make sure they're okay gave him some responsibility when he didn't do that then the session came to him and said okay you're going to visit this person and do this and this and if you can't you can't be an elder in this church because at that point you're, you're either going to just sit there and pull along a limp foot out of diplomacy and you're going to be the secretary of state for peace and not help the church and it's going to make more work for you and it's and and you know what at the end of the day if that person will leave because they didn't get their way it may be good that they left you know i found at new covenant in every case where discontent people left our church grew healthily in every single case they left i would say to our elders we can't lose these people they leave god would bring us five more people and we had more peace so I think the same is true. We often convince ourselves, you know, if I don't keep this person in, I'm failing. But you may actually be failing them. And we talk about that a lot even in the assessment process. Are we failing a man if we don't tell him, hey, we don't believe you're qualified right now? We're not saying never. But are we failing a man if we, if we say the hard things? But I also think, you know, don't take it to a 10 until it gets there. You know, Roland often says, keep it at a four, <laughs> don't take it to a 10. And the same would be true with church members and officers, I think, right? Anything you would? Yeah, yeah, the first church I was in, they were just setting their ways. And I remember the distinction between me trying to say, let's do training at that point, versus trying to get one of them to say we ought to do training, was the key. So at some point, one of them said it. They said the same thing I did six months ago. And I sat there and bit my lip and then saying, we're like, don't can't say that of my idea. Um, if it can be their idea, 
That's a wonderful idea. I'll start tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> While the door's open. So that would be another part of it. Find one of them. Yeah. I might have misunderstood uh, what this one was going to be, but under shepherds, are you just considering that to be? That one's in there, isn't it? Or is that the name of this? I don't know. Jeff gave this yeah. to me. Sorry. <laughs> just elders, ruling elders. It says identifying training and calling under shepherds. So I was under the assumption ruling elders. Okay. So, um, is there, is yes. There a general rule of thumb like ratio elders to congregation. So I can say you have a lot of really qualified men, but you don't. Have I, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, a practical, right? Practically, if you have 200 people, it would probably be advantageous to have five to eight rolling elders to divide it up. What, like 20 individuals a piece kind of thing? Yeah, we, did, we do kind of 15 families. Like, like Ideally 12. I think it's 12 to 15 families what we said at first prize. You, can, you get more than that, they're going to quit working hard. You can't do it all. Mm-hmm. So then we did the math, and so we were praying for a certain number of elders to correspond to that 12 to 15 families. But it's hard. I mean, there's no, sometimes you don't have that option. And that's where people start to feel pressured, I think. we got to get more elders, and maybe you don't have. So I don't, I don't think you always have to act on that impulse. I mean, obviously, if a church is down to one ruling elder and it's going to shut down, if you don't get more elders, of course, mm-hmm. you may have no choice. Um, but normally, I think the tyranny of the urgent hurts this process. I really do. Um, I know BCO allows you, if you have an elder or a, let's say an officer who has problems, you can set them aside, suspend the office for a time mm-hmm. period. In a case like you, where you, you have no one, what, if, what is there some forbidden? A rule somewhere that says you can't put a time limit from the outset. So okay, right. and everybody serves or just you serve for right. and see how you develop. I mean, is that- yeah, I've always been against the rotating session. John Murray has a great article on why he believes a rotating session is not biblical. But in this case, I would be willing to consider it. Um, because of the circumstance, because it's unusual. So we always have to ask if this circumstance that I'm in is unusual, you know, as a sort of a via media approach, would that be something to consider for a time? Sort of a, you know, you have a session at Elder for two years and then he can roll off, sort of thing. On the whole, though, I see in the Bible it does seem that an elder is an elder actively serving until he can. So, and especially in the history of the church and the history of Presbyterianism, the rotating session wasn't really around until Southern Presbyterianism, especially in the 20th century where it was a way to get rid of somebody that was a problem. That was the, that was the large rationale. You can get them off for a year and then never roll them back on. <laughs> but I think you're wise in asking the question because I've been thinking about that. Would that not be a good option if you're in a situation where you don't have men long term? Is that what you were asking? I think so, yeah. I mean, I wasn't looking for a, a matter of convenience where you've got, like Aaron was saying, you've got a, a, a cornucopia of talent and you just can't use them all at the same time, so they just constantly keep the ball rolling. And then the other hand is you don't really have any talent, but you need somebody, and so that everybody knows up front that this isn't forever, you know, no matter what, if you're good, bad, or different, you're rolling off in two years. 
uh, and then you can come back on or go through the process. And at some point, I would presume, you know, when you get this, the, the group that you want and you're happy with in the population sports, that then you can change Take the, the training wheels off, yeah. Okay, no more two year deals. Yeah. 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 Okay. It's hard. In our case, we have so many military. That's that's a that's a that's a sticky wicket. So I want to let you guys go. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom beyond our years. We pray that you would give us wisdom as men that you have called to serve in your church or who you may be calling to serve. Father, we pray that you would bless your church and we pray that you would bless, again, all the churches represented here, that you would give us wise and qualified ruling elders and deacons. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.